All right, this morning we are back on the subject of Jews and Gentiles. Oh, again, why should we study that? I don't care about that. Well, listen, the book of Acts is about expansion of the church, the Christian church, and that's a pretty interesting subject, how the church went from very tiny to very large. And the book of Acts is critical to understanding the transition from the old to the new covenants. It explains how the relationship between God with his chosen people for 1,400 years with the Jewish nation becomes the church that we're familiar with um, because Jesus coming changes everything. So this is of great interest to anybody who really wants to know the heart of God for the world and how he works in history. Last week we talked about the Gentile question, the central question really of the early church. The transition from a nation-state, Israel, to the global church of multiple cultures, that was always God's plan, but it wasn't an easy thing to implement. How do the Gentiles fit in? That's the big question that was being asked. The transition to a church for all people had to happen, but the Jewish lifestyle and Jewish tradition kept Jews and Gentiles apart. It just didn't naturally happen. So the gospel we know is for the world. But for several years, it was almost entirely proclaimed by Jewish followers of Jesus to other Jews. That's almost everything that was going on for the first few years of the Christian church. That had to change. So God chose a time to make that change happen, and that's where we are. That's, where, that's what started in chapter 10. So last time we looked at this key moment in the transition, what's often called the Gentile Pentecost. God arranged events so the Apostle Peter and six other Jewish companions of his would witness the coming of the Holy Spirit onto Gentiles. And it would happen in just the same way it happened to the Apostles and the other people in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. Well, the Spirit, actually 50 days, I think, Jesus ascended in 40 days and then few days later, it was the coming of the Spirit. So the Spirit descended. The, spa the saints all spoke in languages they'd never learned. Peter preached this great sermon on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of people responded to it. So the church was born in kind of a big way in Jerusalem on that day. So here, where we are now in the book, it's some years later, and the same thing happened at Pentecost, but to Gentiles. And the very people who so far had not been evangelized in any kind of meaningful way. It's not that there weren't any Gentiles in the church, but not many, not many. So God used Peter to break down the barrier and start a great work that would lead to ultimately hundreds of millions of people coming to know Christ and knowing the salvation that God provided in him. All down through the ages, it all really ties right back to this. So uh, I would review chapter 10 for you because it's so important, but I don't need to because Peter's going to do that for us in chapter 11. So chapter 11 is designed to come straight off of the Gentile Pentecost that happened in chapter 10. So that story is really continuing. It's just about what happened after it. So in fact, much of chapter 10 is repeated through Peter's telling of the story in great detail. You know, I used to ask myself, why when you have such limited space, like Luke's got a scroll, right? And he's got to fill his scroll why do biblical writers sometimes tell the same story more than one time? I mean, we just read the whole incident. Peter's going to spend a lot of verses recounting it again. Well, usually that's because it's really important. 
Repetition in the Jewish world, in fact, in many places in the ancient world, but the Jews particularly used repetition as emphasis. So if something's repeated several times, it's, it's really important. That's sort of the idea there. And that's why we have Paul's conversion story in the book of Acts three times. We have the story where it actually happened, and then we have two times where Paul tells the whole story to somebody else. So um, Luke could just say, and he told him the story of how he came to Jesus, or when the day Jesus appeared to him. But he doesn't do that. He gives a, a detailed account of that event because it's so important, uh, Paul and his conversion. So, but in each telling, each has a little bit of something new in it. So that's important, and that helps us too. It's never exactly the same. We learn a little new things each time. It's just like the Gospels. You have three Gospels that are very similar, that kind of follow a similar pattern, that tell some of the same stories, many of the same stories. Um, why? Because why, why multiple Gospels? Because it's the greatest story ever told, and it's important. The three Gospels tell us that that's the central act of God. And then John's gospel even adds to that. But those three are similar, but they, they, they differ in a lot of details as well. So they always add new information. So don't look at repetition uh, when you find it as just, oh, well, I already read that. Why is it doing that again? Just think, well, this is something important. That's what you should be thinking when you get to those. So Peter's going to tell what we just read in chapter 10, but you can notice the retelling of it makes it important because the Gentile Pentecost is a world changing event. So I'm going to point you uh, back to verse 45 of chapter 10, where it says, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse water to these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And that was the obvious assumption from what had actually happened. Gentiles who believe, clearly by the action of the Holy Spirit, they only need to follow Christ. They don't need to follow Moses. So, but uh, in addition to that, Peter was given a vision to actually prepare him for this great truth, and then he experienced it firsthand. But for other people, it's not going to be quite that easy because they didn't experience it, and they're just going to find out about it. So when we come to chapter 11... You have to remember the Gentile question is the grand theme here. So we're going to see it front and center as Peter comes home to Jerusalem, where the, the apostles have been meeting for a long time. And then we'll see it on the mission field in the second part of Acts chapter 11, the mission field as the gospel goes to Antioch, a really important event as well. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 11. It says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. When Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. That means ever since they heard that, they were kind of grumbling about it and thinking this is not a good thing. But they say to him, verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So it's not a happy statement. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's not it. It's you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them, which is forbidden, right? So Peter comes to the Jerusalem church to share the marvelous news of what happened at Caesarea, and right away, he's challenged. So Peter had violated a strict Jewish custom. He ate with Gentiles. Now, that's not in the law of Moses. It doesn't say you can't eat with a Gentile. It does say you can't eat their food if it's unclean food. But it doesn't say you can't be friends with them or anything like that. But 
tradition was you don't defile yourself by eating in the house of or in the presence of Gentiles. Uh, Jews just did not do that. So before we get too hard on those folks, you got to remember Peter himself needed a vision from God to cross this boundary, and they haven't had that. It's how they've lived for hundreds of years. It's all they'd known. That's how they were all raised. That's how they all grew up. You don't go to Gentiles and fellowship with them. So it's pretty radical to embrace Gentiles on equal terms, even Gentiles that have come to Jesus. It's kind of like a white pastor in Georgia in the 1930s inviting a black pastor to come and preach in his pulpit. That would not have gone over well. As wicked as it would be to, to say you shouldn't do that, that was the tradition, that was the culture, it was a clear division, and people didn't mingle in that way. So it's a similar kind of attitude going on here. So Peter's crossed a line that in the Jewish mind, nobody should ever cross. So how can Peter deal with this challenge? Well, just to tell the story. That's how he's going to deal with it. Tell the story of what God did there in the heart of Roman power in Palestine, Caesarea. Tell about Caesarea. Tell about Cornelius. Tell about his whole household. He's going to tell that story. So Acts chapter 11, verse 4, I'm just going to read it. Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. An object came down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice speaking to me, saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. In verse 9, but a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. Never mentions Cornelius's name in this particular story, but that's who he's talking about. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa, and if Simon, who is called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. See, first Pentecost. That's what he's talking about. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's a really excellent summary, a great retelling of the basic facts of that event. That's exactly what happened. He does give a few extra details we didn't know about before. He, Cornelius saw an angel standing there. That's not in the original story. And Peter has six men accompany him. It, it just says he had companions, but here he says there were six. So that's new information. But here are the basic facts. Peter had a vision from the Lord, strongly implying that Old Testament dietary laws were no longer in force. At the same moment, men from Caesarea show up at the house asking for him. The Spirit of God tells Peter to go with those guys. Peter took six witnesses with him. This Gentile who was inviting him had seen an angel telling him that Peter had words of salvation for him. 
And remarkably, though most importantly, I think, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon them with power in the same way he came down on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Just the same way, he says. So the conclusion, verse 17, therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? It's a great question. I mean, that's a pretty overwhelming case he made for this being a perfectly fine thing to do. It was God's doing from beginning to end. How could I not follow the Lord? That's what Peter says. And thankfully, Peter's case is so strong, they don't resist it. That's a really good thing. When this particular group of challengers hear what happened, they accepted what God had done. And they should. For one thing, Peter's an apostle, so um, his authority is there. But it's what the Lord did through the whole process. That was so clear. Verse 18 says, when they heard this, they quieted down. That means they were pretty uh, rambunctious about it, I guess. It's a little bit tense. They quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Isn't that beautiful? So they not only quieted down, they glorified God. These saints, those particular saints, although they were sort of stuck in their tradition, they were sensitive to God's leading and to the apostolic witness. So they listened and they changed their minds about it. They changed their hearts. Always be open for God to teach you new things. That's not an absolute statement, by the way. Just make sure it's solidly biblical, whatever he wants to teach you. Just because you were raised in a certain church group that goes back a long way or found Christ through some particular group or something like that. It doesn't mean that everything you learned was biblically solid. It might have been, but it might not have been as well. So you always want to be open to what the scriptures clearly teach. I was raised in a church with an old tradition that did not line up entirely with scripture. So some of those things had to be let go. I was baptized as a little baby, but when I became familiar with the Bible, I got baptized as a grown-up because... I had to make a choice about that, right? Didn't get to choose the first time. I wore a pretty funny looking little gown too, but that's neither here nor there. But I had to measure the Bible uh, with the Bible, the things that I'd been taught or learned to be faithful to Christ. So, okay, now we are going to shift away from Peter for a bit because the second half of Acts chapter 11 details for us the second major influential factor in the evangelization of the Gentiles. First, we saw the Gentile Pentecost. So that's what that's done now. Second, and it's really huge, the rise of Antioch as the second great center of Christianity, the second only to Jerusalem. It's a huge part of the story of Gentile evangelization. Luke wants us to, to show us things, how they begin to take shape among Jewish believers who are exiled from the Holy Land, way back when Paul was persecuting the church as Saul, Saul of Tarsus, right? So most of those folks ended up in Gentile countries. So verse 19 of chapter 11, it says, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, so that's a long time ago, that's several years ago, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. That's really important. Jew to Jew again. Same thing. Even though they went to Gentile countries, the Jews are spread all over the Roman Empire. They have their own little 
enclaves and, and their own synagogues, they limited the gospel to that, to speaking to the Jews, because of these traditions that you don't defile yourself interacting with a, with a Gentile. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, <gasps> preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Isn't that great? So many of the early Christians from Jerusalem ended up in Phoenicia, it says. That's sort of on the northern coast up above Galilee, Tyre and Sidon, what would be Lebanon today. Uh, Cyprus, that's the biggest island in the Mediterranean that's nearest to Israel, uh, before you get over to uh, some of the other big islands, right in the Mediterranean there. And still others went north to Antioch. That's pretty far north. Uh, that's 300 miles uh, north of Jerusalem. It, today it's in Turkey, modern Turkey. So Antioch was a, a huge city. It was a very important city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome. And Alexandria was number two. They had about a half a million people, which in the ancient world is a really large city. That's not common. Usually a big city would be in the tens of thousands. This is a half a million people. The main street was four miles long. It was paved with marble and had beautiful columns and then incredibly beautiful public buildings and all of that. It was a spectacular looking city. It was the only city in the ancient world that lit the streets at night. They had lights for the streets. Nobody else did that yet. So um, it had a rich culture, very busy port, a lot of trade going on, was really close to there. Um, and it was a pretty wicked place. True uh, pagan place. But a lot of Jews did live there, so there was that influence as well. Verse 19 tells us that these early refugees who went there did evangelize. They did, Think about that. They're refugees. They probably lost everything, you know, and just barely making it. But they, they're carrying the gospel forward. That's how they thought about it. They didn't sit on their hands and mope about everything they'd lost. They said, well, God has put us here. Let's, let's do something for him. Let's tell about Jesus. And, and they even started going to other places, like going to Antioch. So it's kind of exciting what they did there. But why only evangelize Jews? Why does it say that they did that at first, these refugees? Well, we know because Jews did not associate with Gentiles. They just wouldn't do it. And there's a lot of Jews there in Antioch. So in the first group of refugees went to Antioch, they just stayed with the Jewish community. The, in fact, the king of Syria had given the Jews equal status with Greeks who founded the city. They weren't in any way second-class citizens, so they really thrived there, and they had a great community there, and it was an attractive place for them to settle. But equal rights did not mean social mixing. They didn't do that. The Jews still did not socialize with Greeks. They considered it defiling. But verse 20 tells us how some very godly saints broke the ethnic barrier. They just did it on their own. They were from Cyprus, that island, and Cyrene. Cyrene is uh, North Africa. It's Tripoli. Tripoli's where they're. Although the Marines didn't land on the shores of Tripoli until much, much later in history. But that's the same place. They made it a point to share the gospel with the Greeks, it says. In verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So major success with Gentiles. That's new. That is new. So you can't exaggerate how big of a step that was. Well, word gets back to the church in Jerusalem, and they decide to send a representative to Antioch. And who do you think they sent? Barnabas. Barnabas. The best choice they could possibly have made. It was a great decision. Verse 22. 
the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So here's Barnabas, Barnabas the bridge builder, Barnabas the encourager, Barnabas the, the generous-hearted man who introduced that surprising convert, Saul of Tarsus, to the church in Jerusalem when nobody wanted to even talk to him. So that's the guy. You might remember that when we met Barnabas at the end of Acts chapter 4, we learned that he was from Cyprus. So he will easily be able to connect with the evangelists who came from Cyprus. So they've got a common thing there. It was, he's perfect. Barnabas is the perfect choice. 100% sold out to Jesus. He loves people. He's brave. So um, he's just the right guy. What does he do when he gets to Antioch? Just what you might expect. Verse 23. Then he, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began in, to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Now, there's an example for us. Brothers and sisters, can you see yourself in Barnabas here? I hope you can. And if you can't, I think you've got some work to do. Really. Are you encouraging the saints with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord? Are you doing that in your life? It's really one of your great purposes for existence. If you're a Christian, that's one of your great purposes, to encourage the saints to stay true to the Lord. You do that with, with regard to your children. You do that with your family, with anyone you come into contact with who professes to be a Christian. They could be at church or somebody you meet at work or somebody you uh, know in the community. But if they're a Christian, you should be encouraging them to stay true to the Lord in every way that you can think of. Not in a harsh way. Barnabas is a positive guy. He's an encourager. But to really put that forth there, if they're weak or they're stumbling or they're having any kind of trouble, you encourage them to be true to the Lord. Well, why do they need that encouragement? Because we fall. Because we all have certain weaknesses, right? Because the world is after us. Satan is after us. Our own flesh can deceive us and trick us. So don't just let things be. No, that's too bad. That person's kind of out there. Find a way to encourage them to be with the Lord, to stay faithful, to be true to the Lord. True to the Lord. That's a great expression. So Barnabas treats these Greek believers with the same love he had for his own people, and he blesses them. He didn't stay in his little bubble. He, he invested himself with people. You know, the saddest news I ever hear is when a brother or sister goes astray. That's the hardest thing in my life when that happens. It's always kind of a gut punch. But it's worse when I learn that their Christian friends or acquaintances or family members did not confront them or love them or encourage them to be true to the Lord. They just kind of let them go. That, that's, that doubles the pain of those situations. It's, it's so sad to see that. Don't be that kind of person. I know it can be difficult, it can be stressful, it can be hard to bring up a conversation like that, but it's, it's a gloriously good thing to do and to encourage someone to be true to the Lord. That's, it should be the most natural thing for us to do that. Barnabas really believed that Jesus is the savior of the world and he's the only mediator between God and sinful man. So he's gonna make sure People are right with Jesus. On his part, he's going to do everything he can think of to do. Okay, if you believe that and have love in your heart, you'll want more than anything for other people to follow the Savior. Look at the description of Barnabas in verse 24. For he, this is why he did it, he was a good man. A good man and full of the Holy Spirit, 
and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So he's evangelizing, he's winning people to Christ. Now, this wonderful evangelist does a very interesting thing in the next verse. He remembers the man that he met years before, the man that the Lord specifically called to be a witness to Gentiles. Where was he from? Where was he from? Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. Yeah, he remembers him. So verse 25, he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So Saul was still at Tarsus where the disciples had sent him long before, um, doing whatever he was doing there. And Barnabas gets him to make him a part of the Gentile work in Antioch. He's the perfect guy. God called him for that. Paul is an apostle. So Barnabas says, goes to Paul and says, listen, great stuff's happening in Antioch. The Gentiles are coming to Christ like crazy. We could use you to help disciple them, to teach them. And Paul's like, yeah, okay. So he goes. For an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So Saul and Barnabas become partners in ministry for the year, a year in, in the, this very work that Saul was called to do. So that was an awesome year. The Antioch church was booming with a large number of Gentiles as a part of that body. Very different from the church in Jerusalem, which was almost entirely Jewish. Um, this is a very mixed congregation, lots of Gentiles in it. So now that the Great Commission to reach the world is just beginning to effectively enter into the final stage. So they evangelized Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, and then Samaria. And now we're working towards the remotest parts of the earth here. So, uh, and it's in Antioch where it says the followers of Jesus were tagged with that new name, Christian. Christians didn't usually call themselves that up until then. And, and it took it even a while after this for them to make it a normal word for themselves. The Bible basically calls believers disciples, saints, faithful, the brethren, followers of the way, things like that. There's only three times in the New Testament where believers are called Christians. So it was just sort of starting to attach. But Antioch is where that started. It just means to follow Christ, a Christ follower. That's what the word Christian means. So if somebody says, I'm a Christian, they're saying they follow Christ. So that can open a conversation right there. So we see in the book of Acts uh, so far that under Peter, the church accepted Gentiles. Under Barnabas, believers were encouraged and Gentiles were being aggressively evangelized. And under Barnabas and Paul, Gentiles were being discipled in the faith. So everything's going right. Now, in the final paragraph, the Gentiles have an opportunity to aid the Jews. So this is an extra little story Luke adds on here. And the setting is a regional famine, verse 27. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, this is a prophet, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Okay, so there's a direct prophecy from a real prophet that there's going to be famines. And before I go on, notice that there were prophets in the early church. And you know what the difference is between an Old Testament prophet and a New Testament prophet? There isn't one. They're, they, they're the same. They do the same thing. The message is a little different because the New Testament prophets have Jesus to talk about in a very plain way, right? He's already been here. So only the message is a little bit different, but they speak God's word 
and they are given the ability to foretell the future. And only God knows the future. So that's how you can tell if somebody's a prophet. Because if somebody just starts predicting things, they're going to be wrong a bunch of times. But if they're a true prophet of God, they're going to know the future. That's how you know. So you can know they're prophets because just like in the Old Testament, they can tell the future and they're never wrong. Like it said about Samuel in the Old Testament, the Lord let none of his words fall. He always was accurate when he predicted the future. And Moses, of course, says if a prophet ever fails in predicting the future, you can chuck him. Pretty literally there, actually chucking him. So here's Agabus predicting the future as a word from God, and he's right. So New Testament prophets are subject to the same standard of judgment as Old Testament prophets. They have to be able to tell the future. Now, modern people that claim to be prophets, they should be subject to the same test, right? But they don't think they should be subject to that test. Why? Because they're wrong so many times. Dozens of prophets got, maybe hundreds of prophets that are around today got the 2020 election wrong, completely wrong, because their hearts were in it for political reasons, and they took that as words from God, whatever their heart was telling them, because they're not real prophets. They're not getting real messages from God. They're just, they get excited about something and they think it's from God. And that's not what a prophet is. A prophet is never unsure about God speaking to him. So anyway, um, they were completely wrong, but they're still on TV and still running the prophet circuit around all the churches and making money off prophesying. But Agabus was a real prophet. So when he foretold a famine, guess what? It happened. That's right, it happened. So we know a famine did occur right around 44 BC, AD, 44 AD, AD 44. It happened in Judea, and uh, Claudius was the emperor during that time. So other parts of the empire had famines too, but it hit uh, Judea pretty hard. And Josephus, who was a Jewish contemporary of Paul, he wrote a history. He recorded that many in Judea died of starvation uh, because they couldn't afford to buy food. Later, a Jewish queen that was in Persia um, bought a lot of grain for relief to Jerusalem from Egypt and had it brought there. And she's kind of a, a heroine in Jewish history, Queen Helena. But before that, uh, the reason she found out about it because she visited Jerusalem and so many people were dying. They were already dying. So that was going on. So it appears that the church in Jerusalem weathered that famine pretty well. Can you guess why? Because Gentile Christians sent them relief. They, they raised money and sent it to them so they could buy their own food from Egypt or wherever. So they took care of each other, these, these two different churches. The very Gentile Antiochian church provided relief for the very Jewish Jerusalem church. Verse 29, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So Barnabas and Saul get to bring the money down and uh, talk about what's happening at Antioch and get everybody on board with all that. So they do that. They take the gift there. So now Luke, as, often, as he often does, he's introducing situations in advance because that's going to come to be important in a little bit. But he's continuing the story. That's the main thing, the continuing the story of how the gospel's moving across the Roman Empire, how it's getting farther and farther spread. And we now have Paul and Barnabas together. In chapter 13, they are going to lead a team to start planting churches in Asia Minor. That's going to be a significant moment. Gentile land, totally Gentile land. 
So what happened in Antioch was a necessary foundation, but it hadn't really been part of a larger strategic effort. But that strategic effort is about to begin. But first we're going to see in Jerusalem uh, a new wave of persecution that will lead to the killing, the killing of an apostle. And this wave of persecution is not going to come from the chief priests. It's not going to come from the Romans. It's really initiated by Herod Agrippa, the, the new Herod. That's so after Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa. The chief priests are going to like it. They're going to praise him for it. They're going to encourage it. But they're not the ones who are initiating this wave of persecution. So we'll see that in persecution, the Lord allows good men to die while others live. But that's for next time. Okay? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a wonderful example you've given us here. Examples of faithfulness. Peter, who obeyed you in spite of tradition. The, the good men who were reluctant at first to listen to him, but when they did, they saw what you were doing and they changed their minds. We see Barnabas encouraging new Christians to be faithful, true to you. So don't let us ever view others as far-off saints, but real people people to bless, to encourage, to lift up. We have our own community we have to reach, and we pray you'd grant us that kind of faithfulness to reach them and for any Christians we know to really encourage them to be true to the Lord. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, next time, chapter 12.